Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is day six. Antitrust lawsuit filed against Google. Saying that the company is illegally using its monopoly in that space. If you're invisible to Google, there's a chance you don't exist. The principal function of Google is changing. Google at the crossroads. An internet giant faces legal action and the threat of AI. That's coming up on day six today. Losing a best friend to unthinkable violence. She's always with me everywhere I go. As the trial begins, remembering Yumna Ofsal. Diana Nyad's controversial triumph. She says that she has nothing to hide. A new biopic raises old questions about her legacy. And getting lost in space in Starfield. The local space cops put me in jail. The latest game from Bethesda is here. But should you play it? All today on Day 6, the Danger Will Robinson edition. If you don't know something, you just go, I'll Google it. You don't, you know, you don't say, I'll go and check on Bing. Sorry, Bing, but it's true. Google search engine turned 25 this week, and it's still top of the heap. But on Tuesday, the company will face a different sort of landmark. Today's landmark action against Google underscores that it is a priority of this Justice Department to fight the abuse of market power. The federal Justice Department in the United States is taking Google to court. It's an antitrust case focused squarely on the company's vice grip over online search. According to the government's complaint, Google is accused of illegally squashing competition by paying Apple and other tech companies to make its search engine the default on products like the iPhone. We alleged that Google has used anti-competitive, exclusionary, and unlawful conduct to eliminate or severely diminish any threat to its dominance over digital advertising technologies. If the judge rules against Google, it could have a seismic impact on big tech. The company could be forced to restructure, and the precedent could be far-reaching. But according to Nilay Patel, Google has even bigger worries. Nilay Patel is the editor-in-chief of The Verge and the host of the Decoder podcast. Nilay, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks for having me. You've said the web today is Google's platform. Over the last 25 years, how much has the internet bent to Google's gravitational pull? Quite a lot. And I, I think that's a really important thing to recognize. We like to think that the web has resisted that influence. But really, the only source of traffic on the web at scale that is meaningful is Google. So Google's influence over the web is undeniable. And if you just look at web pages, they are all designed to attract Google search traffic. How so? My favorite example is recipe blogs. Everybody knows what a recipe blog looks like. You search for some recipe for chocolate chip cookies, and for some reason, there is a wall of text in between you and the recipe for chocolate chip cookies, a story mm -hmm. about someone's family mm -hmm. or the first time chocolate was invented or something. And all of that is there. And if you go talk to the people who write recipe websites, they will tell you this. They're trying to rank in Google search. 
And correctly or incorrectly, a lot of them have been told that they need to pad out the word count of these pages so that Google will recognize them. They've been told they need to pad out the word count of these pages so they can apply for a copyright registration. There's all these reasons that these mm -hmm. web pages look the way they look. And the biggest and most important reason is that if you're invisible to Google on the web, there's a chance you don't exist because that's how people go to websites. That's where the traffic on the web comes from. It's Google search. And if that's where the traffic is coming from, of course, people are going to do what they think will get them traffic. Just like YouTubers do what they think will get them views. It's all the same incentive structure. We know that Instagram is Meta's platform. We know that YouTube is Google's platform. We should be honest and say, well, the web is Google's platform too. But how did this happen without us noticing? Like it, it felt, it feels stealthy that Google was able to centralize itself and become so indisposable on the web. How did they do that? I think that leads right into this trial. It's not that they've become totally indispensable on the web. There are ways to get traffic to your website that don't have to do with Google. You just have to be gigantic. Facebook is a website. People go to Facebook directly. Huge news publishers like CNN have lots of homepage traffic. The vast majority of websites, the vast majority of their traffic comes from Google search. And the reason that the United States Department of Justice is suing Google is because of the claim that Google has acted anti-competitively to maintain that dominance in search. And maybe you believe it, maybe you don't, but you know in your heart that you only Google things. You're not using Bing. You're not using DuckDuckGo. <laughs> These things have vanishingly small market share. And so Google's dominance in the search market equates to control of the web. Okay, but Google's dominant in the search market, and it is the number one choice for, for many, many people. But you say that Google search has actually gotten worse over time, not better. How so? I think this is a reflection of the dominance. The reason uh -huh. Google search has gotten worse over time is because people are making things for the search engine, not for other people. And over time, that feedback loop is really dangerous, right? There's nothing to correct it. There's nothing to push it back towards being a more human experience. For Google, this represents its first, I think, market-based threat. People are going to other kinds of search engines to ask their questions. A lot of young people will just search on TikTok because you'll get a video about how to peel a carrot and you can just watch mm -hmm. it in five seconds instead mm -hmm. of going to some web page. It's like, here are the 50 types of carrots because that's optimized for Google search. That's a real pressure for Google. And it sounds like you think that this is a company that might be ripe for disruption. I think that they have not been under competitive pressure for a long time. And mm -hmm. I think there's real competitive pressure now from things like ChatGPT. I think there's real competitive pressure from just young people's behavior changing and using TikTok more than the web. And I think that there is this lawsuit from the Department of Justice that might unseat them as being the default on the iPhone. And if you just combine all of those things, that is a recipe for change. But, but the chat GPT threat you've described as existential. Why is that such a big issue for Google? Let's say everybody realizes that asking chat GPT is simpler and better than asking Google a question because you can just say, what's the recipe for a chocolate chip cookie? And it will tell you, it will generate mm -hmm. an AI answer for you. That means you're not searching Google. Right? Like fundamentally, you've shifted your behavior one to the other. That's a zero sum game. Google is going to lose some percentage of searches. To combat that, Google has to release its own version of AI powered search, which it is doing. It has something called the search generative experience. It's in beta. You can sign up for it. You Google something, it gives you a chat based answer at the top of the search results. The problem is that sends no traffic to websites. Mm -hmm. And websites 
rely on that traffic to show you ads and to make money and make more website. So if you disrupt that and you stop making the web, well, what on earth will Google search? What will it train the AI on? There will be no new information in places that Google can access. So this cycle where it has to build a product that's competitive with ChatGPT might ultimately undo the economic incentives to make the web, which might undo Google's entire economic foundation. So they're facing this existential threat as an antitrust lawsuit is about to begin, and a fairly historic one. Which would you say is the bigger threat to Google, ChatGPT or the DOJ? ChatGPT. And I say that with confidence because the European Union has been taking action on Google's dominance in search for over a decade. Mm. And they have taken such extraordinary interventions in the market, things the American government would never do. So in Europe, the EU has mandated that when you start up an Android phone, you are presented with the choice of not using Chrome. You are presented with the choice of using search engines other than Google. And everyone picks Chrome, everyone picks Google. Like the market wants to use these products. The thing that might change that is that if the DOJ wins, Apple may no longer be collecting billions in revenue from Google for that default placement on the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that Apple is going to give anything to Google for free. They might turn to another provider. They might start their own search. Who knows what will happen? And losing that volume of search results from iPhone users is a big deal for Google. So that is mm -hmm. one potential outcome that could have a drastic impact. It's just a long way from here to there. Google is at the crossroads then. And given how embedded Google is in the way that we use the internet, if Google is ultimately knocked off its pinnacle, how would that change the internet itself? You know, Google is one part of the internet. The internet is gigantic, right? The internet encompasses TikTok and Instagram mm -hmm. and Facebook and all of these other platforms. And if you look at them in total, they're all undergoing a massive shift. Mm -hmm. And I think that is fundamentally a good thing. It doesn't leave a lot of room for us, right? Like these companies have to figure out what the internet is going to look like. But I think it will create more opportunity for new companies to form, hopefully, for new strategies of gaining attention on the internet that isn't just outrage. And hopefully for a more competitive media ecosystem that ultimately benefits everyone. Neelai Patel, are we going to turn chat GPT into a verb like we did with Google? That's such a good question. I think it's already happened. <laughs> I think people recognize that you should be able to just talk to computers and computers should just be able to tell you the answers and do things for you. Mm -hmm. And I think ChatGPT is on the verge of being that next thing. Neelai Patel, thank you very much for talking to us. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Neelai Patel is the editor-in-chief of The Verge and the host of the Decoder podcast. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Misogynistic comments, homophobic slurs, notions about hypermasculinity, about manning up. Hockey Canada is holding a summit in Calgary this weekend to address the toxic elements of hockey culture. On the agenda, a discussion on masculinity in hockey, as well as gender-based violence, sexism, homophobia, and racism. Former hockey player and sports hall of famer Sheldon Kennedy is among the keynote speakers. Hockey Canada has come under fire after revelations that part of its registration fees were used to settle sexual assault allegation lawsuits. Hockey Canada says it won't collect those fees this season. 
Nike and other major sponsors have since ended or suspended their relationships with the organization. And it has a chilling effect on these people because they're going to be subject to a lawsuit by the world's richest man. Elon Musk has threatened to sue the U.S.-based Anti-Defamation League after claiming the organization is responsible for falling revenues at X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Musk says the ADL's campaign against anti-Semitism on X is deterring advertisers. He says advertisement on the platform is down 60% and that ADL could be responsible for the loss of half half of the value of X, or about $22 billion. The ADL and other organizations have spoken out about a sharp rise in anti-Semitic content on X after Musk acquired the platform and cut back on content moderation. Since taking over Twitter, Musk has also reinstated the accounts of extremists and conspiracy theorists. Still to come on day six, how many planets can you explore in Bethesda's massive new game, Starfield? Our gamer guy, John Orr, tells us if you should play it. It is a vast, complex storytelling role-playing game. We believe that this was an intentional act and that the victims of this horrific incident were targeted. We believe the victims were targeted because of their Islamic faith. There is no tolerance in this community for individuals who, motivated by hate, target others with violence. That's Stephen Williams speaking a little over two years ago in June of 2021. He was London, Ontario's police chief at the time of the attack on the Ufsal family. The Ufsals were out for an evening walk when they were hit by a pickup truck. 15-year-old Yumna Ufsal, her parents, Salman Ufsal and Medea Salman, and her grandmother, Talat Ufsal, were all killed. Yumna's nine-year-old brother, Fayez, was injured but survived. This week, the trial of the man arrested for the attack got underway. He pleaded not guilty to one count of attempted murder and not guilty to four counts of first-degree murder. A year before she died, Yumna Osal finished painting a floor-to-ceiling mural at the London Islamic School before moving on to start high school. Huda Salam was one of Yumna's best friends, and she spent a lot of time with Yumna as she painted the mural. Huda Salam joins me now from London to talk about her friend. Huda, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can I ask you to start by describing Yumna's mural? The, for, for people who might not have seen it, can you paint a picture of the picture she painted? Yes, of course. Um, the mural is something that is spread across an entire wall right in the center of the middle school area of our elementary school, which where we grew up in. It's basically, you could split it up into three parts. One of the parts all the way down at the left, it's a quote that Yumna had put up there that was kind of her part that she got to choose for the mural directly. She wanted to incorporate part of her school, which is the second part. And then she also wanted to incorporate something about her religion and kind of showing the three parts of it. And it's a galaxy themed. So there's beautiful galaxy spray paint all in the back. There's a shooting star that goes from the top all the way down to the bottom to where she signed her name. It's a beautiful mix of purples and greens and blues. And she beautifully captures everything that we believed in and everything that we loved. The mural has the words, learn, lead, inspire. And then Yumna added this phrase, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. What does that say to you about who Yumna was? Yeah. uh, Learning today, leading tomorrow, inspiring forever was our school slogan. And that quote that Yumna chose, obviously it was perfect um, for the galaxy theme. She was very proud of herself for that one. But I mean, obviously it's 
way more symbolic now uh, that she's gone. But anybody who knew Yomna knew that that was the perfect quote to describe exactly how she lived. And it was also just the perfect quote for our age group. Between grade seven and grade eight, all you're thinking about is the next couple of years, which would be high school. And when it had happened, I was in grade nine and now I'm going into my grade 12 years. So you just see how fast life goes and having that in the back of your mind to always do your best, always shoot your shot, because no matter what happens, everything happens for a reason. So it's an incredible quote that I think captures the mural beautifully. Do you remember what it was like the first time that you saw the mural after Yumna's death? Um, I do. <laughs> we were um, we were all at the school making ribbons for the upcoming June 6th events so that people could uh, have a physical representation to show their support for the family. And I went down by myself to go down to the mural. Um, and I just kind of whisked my hand over it and just kind of remembered all of the memories that I had with her, not just creating the mural, but just in that area in general is where our friendship truly blossomed. So it was um, an incredibly surreal feeling and a a very pivotal moment in my grief for sure. I wanted to ask you about the nickname that you have for her. You called her Granny. Is that right? (laughs) Uh, It was definitely one of the nicknames I did use for her. Yes. Why is that? Yumna was a very old soul. She was very into old everything. And I remember in grade seven, we were talking about books and I had just finished the Divergent series. Mm-hmm. And that's like a dystopian kind of thing. You know, it's very in with the, like the teenagers. So it made sense because it was within my age group. She was reading 1984 by George Orwell. Hmm. And I brutally made fun of her for that, <laughs> for sure. And it was just like, she's just a very old soul. Um, she loved old movies, old shows, old music, all that kind of stuff. So um, she was our granny for sure. I love listening to you talk about her. And it's been more than two years now since you lost her. But let me ask you, how do you make sense of something that is this senseless? How do you move forward in your life when your life has been so disrupted? Something that I've definitely learned, um, I've this isn't my first meeting with grief. Um, everyone experiences grief in their own ways. And I've learned that it's it's a very complicating feeling. And so for me, I've come to the conclusion and the realization that you don't ever move on. Um, I don't think you move on from anything in life, but especially when it comes to grief, when it comes to loving someone, love is the only thing that's eternal. It's the only thing that's forever. So that love that you have for the person, it never dies, even if the person does. But in this instance, there's another element and that's that's possibly the element of hate. Right. What was it like for you to confront that reality in your life at 14? Yeah. I mean, it's complicated enough dealing with grief and adding the layers of um, the fact that it wasn't an accident and uh, it was, you know, intentional. And for me, it was, it's so much more difficult. And I was just talking to my mom about this. I still to this day cannot find a single fault in Yumna. And I know that everyone says that about anyone who passes away, but I can find a fault in anyone because everyone has faults. And no one is perfect. Yes. But to me, Yumna was perfect. Yumna was the perfect human being. She was my human being. And it's very complicated. You know, it doesn't just end there. There's so many more processes. There's so many more things that come up afterwards. And so for me personally, it was very difficult to differentiate my grief 
versus dealing with the Islamophobia part. I'm also a visible Muslim. Mm -hmm. It could have happened to me, could have happened to my family, something that I think about every day. Uh, and it was something that I thought about every day for probably a full year. But now I'm really just focused on Yomna, my friend, more than Yomna, the victim. You mentioned Yumna's brother earlier, Fayez, was nine years old when this event happened. He was very badly injured, but he survived. And you're still in contact with him. How is he? He is an incredible boy with strength like no other person I will ever know. And he has a heart of gold. Um, I can barely come up with words to describe him. He's like a little brother to me. So um, if he ever listens to me compliment him, he will just, I don't know, throw a booger at me or something. It's not, <laughs> it's not like I'm supposed to be sitting here telling him he's amazing, but he is. He's incredible and he knows it. So he definitely has every single part of Yomna in him. And uh, it's incredible to be around him. Do you think that your life has changed as a political person since June 6th, 2021? Absolutely. I think that I was definitely very... I guess, woke about social issues. Um, everyone is more woke and more educated on social issues that target them specifically. And so I was very aware of Islamophobia. I had been dealing with Islamophobia since I put hijab on. And even before that, because my mother was a visible hijabi, my aunts are like everyone around me basically was wearing hijab. And so Islamophobia was not new to me. And this happening, um, it being my life for the last two years has completely changed me. You can't see the world in black and white anymore. Um, and it completely changes your perspective and your view on people, on, you know, political values. It completely changes your narrative and your perspective on life for sure. How would you like people listening today to remember your friend, Yumna Ufsal? I want them to remember her as a super smart, super kind, super funny amazing girl. Um, I want them to remember her as human. I think that her and her family, it's been lost upon the world that they're more than victims. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to be seen as victims. I want them to be remembered as humans and uh, individual beings with their own minds. And Yumna had so much potential for this world. Um, and it's definitely, definitely the world's loss. Huda, first day of grade 12, back to school this week. Yes. Was Yumna with you on that day? She was. I, um, we had so many plans, especially for our grade 12 year. Um, it's incredibly emotional and complicated, but I carry her in every outfit that I wear. There's something, there's always a part of me that's Yumna since the day it happened. So she's always with me everywhere I go. Huda Salam, thank you very much for talking to us today. All the best. Thank you so much for having me. Huda Salam was one of Yumna Ufsal's best friends. She just started grade 12 in London, Ontario. Humanity has always hunted for knowledge in the unknown. The wonder is, not that the field of stars is so vast, 
but that we have measured it. That's the trailer to Starfield, a new video game from Bethesda Softworks, which dropped this week. In the game, you join a space exploration group called Constellation. You're in a vast environment of outer space and on land, making discoveries, engaging in space combat, getting caught in surprise twists. We're all here because we're committed to the biggest question of all. What's out there? And if you commit to that question, you'll be committing to a lot of hours of gameplay. Bethesda's head of publishing, Pete Hines, has said that Starfield doesn't really even get going until you're about 130 hours into it. Day6 gaming expert Jonathan Orr is here to tell us if it's worth it. He's played more than 50 hours of Starfield so far. John, welcome back to the show. Hi, Brent. Thanks for having me. So Bethesda is famous for very well-known games like Elder Scrolls, Skyrim, and Fallout. Is Starfield different from the games that Bethesda has offered so far? I would have to say fundamentally no. It is actually the same kind of game when you zoom out, right? It is a very vast, complex um, storytelling, role-playing game. So Mm -hmm. you are walking around, you are talking to people, you are completing quests, you are learning about the world around you, you are sometimes or quite often getting into fights. So like the core building blocks of uh, Starfield make it essentially like a sci-fi version of Skyrim or like a more optimistic sci-fi version compared to Fallout. And and what's your mission? Is Is there one single mission through all of this? There is one central mission. There are also dozens, maybe hundreds of other minor quests and secondary storylines. But the central story revolves around you joining a group called Constellation. They are a ragtag group of space explorers in a time when space exploration is kind of blasé, right? Mm -hmm. We've already colonized the systems. Who cares? Mm -hmm. So – You have found something called an artifact, which is a strange alien shard of metal. And you as a member of Constellation are trying to find more artifacts, learn about where they came from, try to figure out their potentially alien origin. Along the way, uh, those artifacts grant you uh, mystical, magical superpowers. So it's an interesting like spacefaring mystery kind of game. But it is a vast game. And it's the vastness of it that, that a lot of people, including critics like you, have picked up on so far. There's seemingly unlimited twists and turns in the game. Did you get caught up in anything that surprised you? Yeah, there there were some really interesting things that happened, um, partially because of some really smart uh, writing and narrative structure, also because of some interesting situations where the multiple different systems kind of bump up against each other Mm -hmm. in in surprising ways. So uh, one thing that happened was that I was exploring a mostly barren planet for, you know, surveying the flora and fauna. Then I ran into a ship that was uh, manned by uh, space pirates called the Crimson Fleet. Space shooting stuff happens. I've taken out the enemies. I get on the ship and then the ship launches into orbit without me knowing it. Uh, I took out the pilot and then suddenly I had been informed that I had captured the ship for myself, which was not something I had intended to do. Hmm. Um, only problem, you can only have like one main ship in play at once. So the other ship that I had been playing uh, with for like the last 20 or so hours has kind of been like zapped into the ether mm-hmm. and I needed to find where the heck to get my yeah. normal ship. So I went to the nearest star system and as soon as I arrived at the star system, the local space cops put me in jail because that space pirate ship that I had just unintentionally commandeered had contraband on it. Okay. Well, I guess it was a pirate ship. Yeah, so. sure. That's what do, pirates do. You know, do. do you know what the 
contraband was? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, it's it's strange. Sometimes you run into situations where you don't really know what happens. Um, hopefully, if you find your way out of it uh, unscathed, then maybe a fun story comes out of it. Right. The narrative is not a straight line. And I'm sure there's lots of gamers who really like that. But what what did you like most about this game? There are a couple elements. One is like the conversation persuasion system. So you meet tons of characters along the way from like shop owners to pirates to just like uh, you know, very unusual like space gangsters, I guess you could call them. And you can sometimes try to talk your way out of a situation or talk your way into getting a better deal. Like sometimes you have to kind of like flatter somebody who likes to be flattered. Or right. if someone doesn't like that, you have to take the exact opposite uh, track. Another thing I really like are the main companions, the members of Constellation. More than any of the other non-player characters, they are fully fleshed out. They are all uh, wonderfully performed by voice actors. My favorite is Sam Coe. He's kind of like this future space cowboy, single dad guy, uh, voiced by Canadian uh, actor Elias Tofexis, who mm -hmm. gamers might know from the Deus Ex. Mm -hmm. He's trying to live with the burden of expectations because he comes from a family of pioneering space explorers. So people have really high expectations of him. Well, he's just kind of trying to learn how to you know, be a good dad while also exploring the stars. So I, I love that kind of like multifaceted character. Let's talk about some of the details in, in offices and apartments, for example, because they, they, they look like they've been – some of them have been well thought out. But you had some gripes about uh, an item of food that you came across. What, what, what did you find? Yeah. I mean like the, the environments are great because there would be an environment that has all the details like the radio studio we're in right now. So you know, you would walk in. There's a table. There's microphones. But there would also be a tissue box like strewn about headphones, some glasses. That's really cool. Not, mm -hmm. not every game makes a sci-fi world feel lived in. Mm -hmm about the food. There's a whole line of Canadian canned food. They're called can -uck. Um like you can you will find canned poutine, canned um, maple syrup cola, but there are some items that are not canned, one of which is a sandwich which is called the Haligonian and it looks like a sandwich wrap. Now, being called the Haligonian, I believe it's meant to refer to a donair sandwich wrap. Right. The only problem is that the visual representation of the sandwich looks like it includes meat, but also lettuce and cucumber, which are oh, ver which are verboten yeah. it, when it comes to <laughs> Nova Scotian Donair. So I did actually reach out to Bethesda's PR asking specifically about the Haligonian. I did not receive a response. Okay. Other than lettuce on a Donair, what, what disappointed you about playing Starfield? A lot of small, rather annoying things. The thing about Bethesda games is that they're so vast and large and complex that they can sometimes be buggy and mm -hmm. glitchy and mm -hmm. the things might not work the way you think they are. It's far less glitchy than previous Bethesda games. But I mean like the shooting isn't quite as precise as like a dedicated shooter. Sometimes the movements feel really weird. Like I look at stuck trying to walk around the corner of a table. There's a map of the star systems. There are certain points of topography that the maps show you. But when you're at a major city, there's just no road map. Mm. So I constantly get lost because the cities are huge. They are like gigantic labyrinths and like naturalistic feeling towns with like winding roads and alleys and like a dozen shops. But I have no way of finding mm -hmm. a certain shop if I wanted to. Um, so that's kind of frustrating. Um, there are a lot of other systems that are too complicated for their own good, I feel like. Like you can upgrade your ship and buy new ships. But when you do it, do that, it opens a blueprint system that makes me feel like I need an engineering degree <laughs> to understand what I'm doing properly with my ships. And I know some people will love that, yeah. but it's just too much for me. I'm, I would feel like just give me the better ship, please. 
Right. So a few quibbles there. But let's talk about what this game means for Bethesda and for Microsoft, which just acquired Bethesda. What's riding on the success of Starfield for them? There's a lot. Microsoft really hasn't had any major hits uh, in the last few years mm. that you can only play on Xbox. Uh, Halo Infinite did all right, but was kind of disappointing. They really need Starfield to be the one game that you absolutely have to play, and you can only play on Xbox or you know Microsoft's Windows uh, PCs. So they really need to knock this out of the park to, to have like the one standout game, especially for this holiday season. Well, let's talk to the people who are just waiting to decide whether or not they should play it. John, Starfield, the new game from Bethesda Softworks. Should I play it? Yes, you should play it, but... I would not pay full price for it uh. a la carte without doing a substantial amount of research. There is a lot to the game. You might love it and put in dozens or hundreds of hours. You might bounce off it after an hour and just not like it at all. On the other hand, it is included uh, in Xbox's Game Pass subscription. So like their, game, their Netflix for games. Mm -hmm. So if you are already a subscriber of Game Pass, you can just download it, try it for an hour. And if you don't like it, just kind of move on. Um, but yeah, like know what you're getting into because uh, Starfield is really fascinating. Like I keep I keep wanting to play just because I want to see what happens. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm having fun all the time, <laughs> you know? So if you're looking for like quick, easy fun, you just want to jump in and jump out, maybe this isn't the best game for you. Starfield unlocked since Wednesday. Jonathan, thank you very much for previewing it for us. Always a pleasure, Brent. Jonathan Orr is a senior writer with CBC Radio Digital and Day 6 is gaming expert. <laughs> Still to come on day six, a marathon swimmer, her singular achievement, and a lingering controversy. People doubted that she could swim all that way. Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts. Also at cbc.ca slash day six. Watching these movies feels like dreaming. You just surrender yourself to the experience knowing anything could happen. That's Fabiola Melendez Carletti. She's a CBC podcast coordinator and a friend of the show. She's also our resident studio Ghibli geek. That's the Japanese animation house co-founded by legendary animator and director Hayao Miyazaki. Studio Ghibli keeps it real. They continue the craft and distinctive feel of hand-drawn animation, and each frame on its own could be a work of art. Miyazaki is now 82. He has hinted that his latest film, The Boy and the Heron, will be his last. But a Studio Ghibli executive says, maybe not. The movie's international premiere was on Thursday at the opening gala of the Toronto International Film Festival, and it's the first time an animated film has headlined TIFF. Susan Napier is not surprised that The Boy and the Heron took Tiff's top billing. She's the author of Miyazaki World. Susan is a Studio Ghibli superfan, and she went a bit out of her way to see The Boy and the Heron before its international debut. 
I went to Japan in order to see it. It was highly, it was worth the 14-hour plane trip because it is a, a beautiful and, in a way, rather poignant film. You are going to be swept away into this highly unique universe, which uh, contains some of the best aspects of Ghibli and Miyazaki. Since Susan loves Ghibli enough to take long-haul flights to see its latest offering, we thought she'd be the perfect person for those of you looking for an introduction to the Studio Ghibli universe. Each one of Miyazaki's films is very different. That, that's one of the pleasures. The Studio Ghibli film is always a, a unique and always actually a beautiful experience. I mean, it's, it's maybe funny to call animation beautiful, but these are absolute works of art. There's a reality to Ghibli films that is very interesting because they're so detailed and so beautifully expressed. The uh, relationship between the protagonists and the world around them is so carefully and intimately created that you absolutely believe in it. And there's this uh, very beautiful scene early on in a movie called Kiki's Delivery Service. The movie opens with Kiki, that's the, the young witch, and she's lying on her back looking up at this deep, deep, limpid, translucent blue sky and with a few clouds overhead kind of wisping by and you see the wind in her hair and the wind blowing the clouds and you have a feeling of, of quiet adventure, just sort of peace before adventure. What three films would I choose to show people who don't know, have never encountered a Miyazaki film? It's a very fun question because in a way it's hard to get the answer wrong. I love the film My Neighbor Totoro. It is a stunning work of art, which seems to be initially about two children and their father moving into the countryside to be with their, their mother is sick and she's in a hospital. It's also about nature because they are discovering this beautiful rural countryside. Uh, it, it can be a little dark and a little bit intimidating, but also literally magical, as it turns out, because there's this creature, whom they call a Totoro, who lives in the woods. Uh, at one point, the, the Totoro takes the, the sisters on a nighttime flight above the rice fields and the mountains and the moon, and it is just heartbreakingly beautiful. It's so beautiful, and you want to be on that flight with them, the sense of power. It's a unique film. It's absolutely beloved by children, but it can very much be appreciated by older people as well. Uh, the second one, I would have to say, Spirited Away. It's about a young girl who, for various reasons, uh, has to get work at a bathhouse for the gods. Eventually, the, the bathhouse is threatened by an entity which is quite terrifying, and she has to deal with that. The entity itself is so strange and, and amazing that you kind of can't believe it. Where is your home? Don't you have any friends or family? No. No. I'm lonely. I'm lonely. It is a, a masterpiece of animation uh, and a masterpiece of narrative because you never know what's going to happen next, yet at the same time you feel like you're okay. It's going to be exciting and maybe scary, but it's ultimately going to be all right. One more film that I do have to mention, of course, is Princess Mononoke, which is uh, an epic film, an historical fantasy epic. 
It's set in the mountains in 14th century Japan uh, and in a forest. And the forest and the mountains are, are really um, become alive, literally become alive. But you have these humans who are trying to to deal with the forest and the mountains and the beasts in there. And it it's, can be very violent, and very brutal, but you have this overall uh, sense of this larger animistic world that is really gorgeous. There will still be people, and often I'd say it's, it's my generation or older, who really do have a, a feeling of I don't know, unease around animation, that it is childish and, and it's supposed to be, if anything, it's supposed to be funny. Certainly Studio Ghibli can deal with, with some very heavy duty issues. Loss, transience, death, apocalypse. Maybe one reason why it's so popular among millennials is that this is a generation that is dealing with serious issues from early on. Climate change, uh, you know, the war, things like that. And the, the movies from Ghibli allow people to kind of explore these concerns. If you kind of relax and let them kind of wash over you, it allows you to explore them at kind of a mental arm's length. What is Miyazaki's legacy? I, I, sometimes I get a little choked up when I, I think of some of his films because they really touch things such as sadness and, and loss, but also hope and expectation. And, just, and then you, uh, underneath there is this kind of overwhelming joy of just, the, just the, the fact that we are here. These films will be watched and loved and they will be striking chords in people's brains and imaginations for, for decades to come because they are fundamentally unique and at the same time, utterly universal. Susan Napier is Goldthwaite Professor of Rhetoric and Japanese at Tufts University and the author of Miyazaki World, A Life in Art. Wow, what's it been like 30 years since you put on a pair of goggles? That's right. How'd it feel? Great. Came right back to me. Great exercise at your age. Low impact. Easy on the joints. Yeah. I want to do it. Do what? Cuba to Florida. My swim. Huh? <laughs> You're hilarious, sir. No, I'm not kidding, Bonnie. I'm going to do it. Swimming a few laps in the community pool? Good for you. Low impact exercise. Swimming 175 kilometers through shark-infested water, much higher impact. That was a clip from Nyad, a new biopic set to have its international premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival next week. Annette Benning stars as the long-distance swimmer Diana Nyad with Jodie Foster as her coach, Bonnie Stoll. The movie follows Nyad as she tries to be the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage, a swim that she had already failed four times 30 years earlier. But fifth time was the charm. In 2013, at the age of 64, Diana Nyad came ashore in Key West, Florida, completing the 53-hour swim. We should never, ever give up. It's the kind of inspirational story that sports movies are made of, but not everyone in the marathon swimming community is cheering the new film. Some skeptics say Nyad has a history of exaggerating her successes, and they question some of Nyad's achievements, including her Cuba to Florida swim. 
Dandy Adana is managing editor at Swimming World magazine. He's written about the skepticism around Nyad's legacy ahead of the film's release. Good morning, Dan. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks, Brent. How are you doing? I'm great. It's great to have you with us. For those of us who aren't well-versed in the world of marathon swimming, who is Diana Nyad? Diana Nyad is one of the best marathon swimmers in the world. She's completed some pretty epic swims, one from uh, Naples to Capri and across Lake Ontario and around Manhattan Island in New York City and uh, is in the International Marathon Swimming Hall of Fame for those exploits. And she uh, also completed a pretty big swim from Cuba to Florida that she had attempted a few times and uh, finally got there in 2013. When, when she was in her 60s, and, and that's the story that this new movie wants to tell, the, the marathon swim that Nyad took from Cuba to Key West in 2013. Can you put that event into context for us? How big of an undertaking was that for a seasoned marathon swimmer? I mean, it's, it's stunning. I mean, I, first of all, for me personally, anybody who does any sort of marathon swim is the good kind of crazy, if that makes <laughs> sense. Um, I don't have that kind of endurance or that kind of drive anymore. <laughs> Never did really. Um, but it's those swims. I mean, like you think about like open water swimming in the Olympics and a lot of people don't even know that open water swimming is in the Olympics, but it's a 10 K right. A 10 K, you know, is a lot different than swimming, you know, 110 miles from Cuba to the tip of Florida dealing with jellyfish and sharks and currents and whatever else you got to you got to deal with. I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling to me that any any human being can really stand something like that. Right, right. And there's also dehydration, there's sunburn, there's just the hours that you spend in the water and and of course the rules which we'll talk about in just a moment because that's where the controversy is. But how would she have trained for something like this, especially at that age? Well, I mean, it's building the endurance. However, you know, however she could do that. I know I know that she would swim hours and hours in the pool. You know, when you think about swim teams, you know, having a two to three hour practice, she's doing at least that every day, just about in her 60s. Mm. And that's just a, a phenomenal amount of commitment, you know, and drive to be able to do that. But that also, it's a, it's a lot of time and it is a lot of work on anyone's body, let alone somebody who's uh, you know, in their 60s. Right. And she'd failed previously, but she came back to do it again. Still, among swimmers especially, there is a controversy around this achievement, particularly the, the, the Cuba to Florida swim. What do her critics say about that event? It is a bit of a controversy. And a lot of that is just based on the ambiguity of her swim. Uh, and, and a lot of some of that is, you know, stuff that she did. Some of it's stuff that's completely out of her hands. There's no there's a different set of rules for every kind of swim. A lot of open water swims and marathon swims are judged by the English Channel rules of things. And the English Channel rules is, you know, no wetsuit, no no assistance or whatever, like, you know, like that. You, you can't really swim the Cuba to Florida swim without assistance because you'll probably die. Um, there's box jellyfish. There are sharks. It is much hotter water you're dealing with a lot of other things and there just weren't, there also weren't a set of rules there. Uh, the same kind of rule set that the English channel swimming has had for, for decades. And so the critics, you know, claim that she was not doing this swim up to standard. And, you know, there was uh, like a five hour time lapse in the official recorders with her. And it just had a lot of question marks. However, there was no set of rules for this channel at this point. 
And, uh, you know, she didn't really do a great job of saying ahead of time, telling everybody exactly what she was, how she was going to be doing it and what rules she was following herself, let alone any sort of governing body. So then the swim wasn't ratified the same way because it couldn't be ratified the same way. That That's kind of where the controversy comes from, I guess. And how does, I mean, she, she's aware of the controversy. So, so how does she address that? How does she talk about the 2013 swim in retrospect? Well, she, I mean, she says that she has nothing to hide and, and she came out and said exactly how she did it. You know, people doubted that she could swim all that way because it's hard not to doubt that anybody could do that in the first place. The problem is there's no evidence that she didn't complete the swim as she had said, but there's also, it's hard for her to prove that she did also, but you know, there's a new standard now with, with that swim. And, and I would say that it's looking like it was what you would call an assisted adventure swim. Just having a wetsuit is assisted, an assisted swim for the English channel. And she had to have her body covered. Otherwise you've got box jellyfish to deal with. And that's terrifying. Right. Um, if you just end up in the middle of one of a pack of one of those, to me, that's scarier than a shark because people on the boat can see a shark usually, but jellyfish you could just you could get stung real bad and just sink and never come back oh my up. gosh yeah so yeah. you obviously have to have assistance there and they have anti-jellyfish spray which sounds like something out of an old james bond or batman <laughs> movie um but somebody's got to be able to like put that on somebody you know and stuff so she definitely was assisted but she also never really said she wasn't assisted so there's you know there's just a lot of a lot of loud talking about it but at the end of the day it's it seems to be an assisted adventure swim that she completed which is astonishing so this uh, this swim happened 10 years ago around the same time that lance armstrong was exposed for cheating and cycling so there there was probably a climate of a suspicion in sports especially big events in sports around the time but what about naiad's personality is there something about her personally that makes people more likely to question her I mean, she w used to exaggerate a little bit more when she was telling stories. She's a great storyteller. You know, she she had for a while said that she was the first woman to swim around Manhattan Island, um, which she was actually the seventh. But, in you know, to be fair, you know, she was told that she was the first and pre-internet didn't really have the research and regrets saying it. But at the same time, people remember things like that. And I think that that's... You know, there's been a few instances like that. So, but that you you build a little bit of a history of that. That's enough to build a little bit of doubt in some people's minds, and especially like you said during Lance Armstrong time, and you're not terribly far from removed from all the steroid stuff in baseball. And you're, you're yeah. there's a lot of it was a, a whole decade uh, of doubt of things. You know, it, it makes her a little bit more of a controversial figure, which also makes her a little bit more well known. We all know mm -hmm. that every sport mm -hmm. and every avenue of life. The, the controversial figures have, uh, you know, get a lot of attention because of the controversy. So it's it's kind of been a double-edged sword for her. Like, it's hurt her, but it's also helped her a little bit. And, and I think that that makes her a little bit of a polarizing figure. As polarizing as you can get in marathon swimming, I guess. But the people that you spoke to in your article who are keeping this controversy alive, they're insiders in the swimming world. Why does it matter to swimmers whether Diana Nyad's swim is ratified by a governing body or not? Well, I think in, in swimming, like in a lot of sports, I mean, the same, you know, we talked a little bit about baseball, you know, baseball had the whole steroid thing. There was steroids in baseball for decades, and it didn't seem to be an epic problem until people started breaking huge records. Uh, anytime you're dealing with something 
that's timed and records. There's people that think records should belong with other people or who fairly got them. And I think, I think it's more of the sports obsession with records. Why do you think this movie is about Diana Nyad? Why isn't it about some other swimmer? Well, I think her being a polarizing figure, you know, gained some attention to it, but also the fact that she failed this swim four times and wanted to keep going right. and, and, and achieve it. I think that's very in inspirational, and I think that's why. Are you going to watch it? Absolutely. Dan Diadona, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dan Diadona is managing editor at Swimming World magazine. Nyad premieres at TIFF next week. It'll be on Netflix in November. Time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. <laughs> and here it is. Rift from the headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you can win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. One and only Pretenders with Chrissy Hind, the middle of the road, Gwen Stefani and the Sweet Escape, and Gloria Gaynor with Honeybee. Three righteous women. And Dan Wren of Toronto guessed the headline that we we're looking for. A load of five million bees fall off a truck in Ontario. Congratulations, Dan. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Great place to keep your beard of bees. And now, here's this week's clue. <laughs> We're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Time, weather, and... from the headlines. Ah! And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Annie Bender, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tusfu Tedessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's two days till Mohammed bin Salman's state visit to India, six days to Rosh Hashanah, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. You just surrender yourself to the experience knowing anything could happen.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.